You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 74, with Aaron T. Walker. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's good, Blazer Nation? Welcome to another episode of the Trailblazers Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Hart. I want to thank you very much for tuning into today's episode. Our guest, our featured guest today, is Aaron T. Walker. Aaron founded a nonprofit by the name of Camelback Ventures, which is a social impact fellowship for people of color and for women. And their entrepreneurs focus on improving communities through education, mental health, and art. And so in today's conversation, Aaron and I discussed how he acquired the essential skills that are needed to become a successful entrepreneur. We discussed a past roadblock that really hampered, you know, a, a meaningful project of his. And he goes on to share some of the intangibles that social entrepreneurs are needing today to be able to develop and grow and succeed. And we talked about so much more. So without further delay, let's go ahead and, and get set to receive today's Mission Fuel from our featured trailblazer, Aaron T. Walker. Enjoy. Aaron, welcome, and thanks for being our featured guest on today's episode. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. So I saw, and I really enjoyed this video feature that Allstate, I believe, did on you for Black History Month. And in it, you know, I learned that you grew up in South Orange, New Jersey, and had me wondering, you know, what the big goal was for you, you know, growing up. Yeah, you know, I think a couple thoughts. So one is... When I lived in South Orange, we lived on the last street in South Orange, and the next street over was Nork. And so, you know, for me, I was just keenly aware as a kid, just like the difference between those two communities and sort of felt really fortunate and lucky to grow up on the on the right side of that line. And when I say right side, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that one was better than the other, but, you know, the fact of the matter was that the opportunities and education afforded to a kid who grew up in the town that I was in was just better than if you lived in Newark. And so for me, it was always the sense of responsibility of wanting to do something that really mattered and would create this world where those lines that divide that line that I literally lived on, it wouldn't have mattered. I could have grown up in South Orange. I could have grown up in Newark. And so that was like the motivating factor of, of the thing that I wanted to do when I was growing up. And I didn't know what that was exactly, but that was always sort of my my North Star. And, you know, as a kid, I was a nerd. I guess the young kids today would say a blurred. So, <laughs> you know, I like watched C-SPAN. Like, you know, that was my, that was, you know, my show, Eight O'Clock. <laughs> eight, eight O'Clock, the American Experience. So, you know, I would wake up in the morning, I would listen to talk radio so i don't know i just always always like stimulated by you know the life of the mind and thoughts and I, big ideas and just wanted to take all those things and, and understand the world in a bigger way and you know do something that made a difference my favorite sport growing up was baseball and so you know we all sort of have this sports dream my sports dream was was making it to the majors really? um, <laughs> that obviously did not happen <laughs> but I, I loved it out for a little while nice nice so you're an entrepreneur today which is crazy because you know, I know you studied foreign affairs at Virginia and then went on to law school at UPenn, right? 
I did, you know, so... I got to law school because before that, I was teaching. I was a high school teacher in West Philadelphia. Um, I taught ninth grade English. I started teaching when I was 22, totally unprepared. You know, I, I got into teaching through Teach for America, and so I did the summer training, and two months later, jumped into the classroom. And, you know, like a lot of things in life, you can spend a lot of time in the classroom, but the way that you get better at anything is just putting yourself in the situation and figuring it out. A couple things I learned in the classroom, A, about like life and leadership and things that actually have been influential in the work I'm doing at Camelback. There was another piece that most immediately encouraged me to go to law school, which was just looking around and thinking to myself, every single day, we are asking teachers to perform these heroic tasks to provide kids with a basic education. And I don't, I don't mean to say this to, to sort of put the work that I did down or the work that my colleagues uh, that, that we did, you know, sort of diminish it. But when I really step back and think about it, we weren't providing an extraordinary education. It was basic. It was, you know, sometimes solid. But the tasks that we had to perform every day to, to make that happen, it wasn't sustainable. You know, I taught a high school that had no library. You know, so when, when I sort of thought about these situations, I just began to realize that there were so many other systems at play that teachers and students are trying to overcome. And mm -hmm. so how could I go to law school to kind of understand what those systems were and figuring out, particularly from a legal perspective, how to dismantle some of those. And, you know, I started teaching in the early 2000s when, you know, I think this language still exists, but, you know, at the time, I think it was more prevalent or was maybe just my young mind was, was more influenced by it. You know, talking about education being the civil rights movement of, of my generation. And so when I thought about that, I thought about lawyers and legal challenges and figuring out how come education wasn't a fundamental right protected in the Constitution. You know, uh, we figured out that there's a right to privacy, in the, but even though that's technically not even actually even in the Constitution, like why isn't there a right to education if there are states who are locking up or creating jails and jail cells and jail beds based on the third grade reading level of students and particularly folks of color in that state, then that means something, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if you were saying we're going to build prison beds based on the percent of kids who know how to read in the third grade, that means that you understand that education is freedom. And so I wanted to go to law school to sort of explore all these ideas and figure out like what I was going to do and how I was going to contribute to the bigger problem at hand. So you graduate from law school, from Ivy League law school, and clearly you could probably have gone on to earn high six-figure salary working for some bougie law firm. <laughs> what happened out of law school and what was that breakthrough in your career that ended up steering you in this direction? Yeah. So because I went to law school with this ethos of trying to figure out how I was going to change your world. I don't think I was particularly unique in that aspect. I think there are a lot of folks who have that drive and have that desire to figure out how they're going to use an advanced degree to, to do those things. You know, for me, it was, it was always about trying to use that law degree to get there. Yes, I went to Penn. It was a great experience. You know, when you go to a, a law school like that, I sort of, you know, sometimes joke with my friends, like, you just have to have a pulse and like a B average to get a law firm job, um, <laughs> you know, and, and and they make it easy, right? Like the, the whole system is sort of set up to go work at a big law firm. And truth be told, I did go work at a law firm for a couple of years after I graduated, in large part to pay back the extraordinary amount of money that I owed. But I also want to have the professional experience and just kind of understand what that will look like and gain some business skills. And so I want to go do that. And, you know, at some point, you know, I sort of realized that this is not what I want to do long term. And in some ways, I think it was God's grace saying, 
like, you know, I'm just going to cut this off now, but I end up getting laid off. This was like mm. post 2008, right after the crash, the economy was in shambles. And so it really just kind of freed me up to say like, the reason I went to law school is not to, you know, do merger and acquisition deals for big company A to buy big company B. It was, it was really to, to use this education to make some systemic change for black and brown kids and communities, people that were my cousins and my uncles and, uh, you know, people who, who look like me. And so, you know, when that happened, I ended up getting an opportunity to go work at the Fund for Public Schools in New York City. And, you know, that kind of put me on a, on a different trajectory and one that, you know, if money were no object, I probably would have put myself on sooner. Mm. So you come out of this, you know, I'm looking at your education and some of the experience that you mentioned. You're now an entrepreneur today, and I'm going to have you share a little bit about Camel Bank here in a second. But Again, you studied foreign affairs, you studied law, you taught. How did you come about learning the essential skills that you needed to become a successful entrepreneur yourself? You know, I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I think there was always that ethos in me. I like being the first. I, I mean, like that doesn't phase me or I don't find it daunting. And maybe it's because I was, the, you know, I'm the first child, you know, between. My wife and you I know, always my... talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, between my parents and my grandparents, and I have some other cousins and stuff who went to four-year college, but I was like the first to do that. I lived abroad in Argentina, I mean, you know, studied, ended up learning three languages. And when I did Teach for America, we were the first core Teach for America I ever had in Philadelphia. You know, so I was always just like, hey, I want to do this thing. I'm interested in it. I don't really care. People have done it before. And, and so I, I guess that, that was always been in having that um, mindset, that, that sensibility, yeah. I would say. I would say a couple things along the way, though, probably taught me a lot of entrepreneurship skills, even if it wasn't in, my, in a formal classroom setting. One was just baseball, right? Like in baseball, you are a really good player, you know, if you're on, in offense. If you get a hit three out of 10 times, that means seven out of 10 times you're failing. Um, and so, in many ways, entrepreneurship is about managing failure. Without to say, you know, entrepreneurship at some level is an exercise in micro failure, you know, and so. I think baseball sort of built within me this sense of understanding how to manage failure, you know, how to have a short memory. You know, you kind of, you know, sometimes they use that analogy in football about being a cornerback and, you know, you give up a touchdown, you just have a short memory, next play is coming. Uh, you know, I sort of think it's somewhat similar in, in sort of skill I learned in baseball. I think teaching also helped me a lot. You go into the classroom, particularly when you're, when you're new and you just have this the sort of vision of being Jaime Escalante, you know, like coming to the classroom, you four walls and, you know, 25 kids and you're going to, your, your genius is going to change the world. But what you quickly realize is that nothing great's ever achieved by yourself. And so, yes, it's, it's imperative that you be a great teacher, but your kids are only with you for 45 minutes a day, particularly if you're at the high school level. And so they're going to go to someone else's classroom and someone else's classroom and someone else's classroom. Um, and all those things matter. And you, know, you all have to be on the same page and work together. And, you know, leadership matters. You know, I sort of think about my principal and, you know, who you work for matters a lot. I think, you know, my wife is an entrepreneur. And, you know, one of the things that she and she does work in a talent space is, you know, she always says that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. You know, t teaching just sort of taught me that, you know, lead leadership really matters. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we look for in particular where we're, you know, trying to vet for entrepreneurs is, yeah, you, what's your idea? What's the business model? But what kind of leader are you? And, you know, will people follow you? Will you be able to make hard decisions? Will you be able to say what you don't know? Things like that. 
And then I guess the last influence is my family. I'm particularly thinking about my mom and my dad, my grandfather on my dad's side. They were folks who just showed up every day. Like, I remember my mom was like, uh, she was like mad, but at me. But uh, like having perfect attendance was really important to her when I was in school. I remember I had to miss, I think I missed in 12 years of school, I probably missed like three days, something crazy like that. And one of them was because I was like sick. I was like in eighth grade, I got strep throat. I had like never missed a day all of middle school, like from fifth grade to eighth grade until like spring of, of my eighth grade year. And, you know, I sort of tell this story to kind of poke fun at myself, but also to say that I think it just sort of instilled me in the sense that you just get up every day you show up and you're present. I, I think a lot of entrepreneurship is just about showing up. Sometimes people will ask, how did you get here? And I think there are a bunch of things that go into it, but sometimes it's, it's just about who's willing to show up longer than, than the next person. So true. So tell me a little bit about Camelback Ventures. Camelback is a nonprofit that I started 2013, sort of had the seed of an idea in 2013. And it was really just born of wanting to create a place and a platform for folks of color in particular in the social entrepreneurship space. And I think a lot of my viewpoint has been colored by being in education and seeing a lot of discussion around education reform. And, you know, one of the things that I always saw and I would talk to my black and brown friends about is like, hey, everyone who gets this something who gets to start a tech company, who gets to start a school, who gets to start one of these high-impact nonprofits. They never, they rarely ever look like us, but, you know, they're always in communities of color. And, you know, I wanted to do something about that. And and this is certainly not the first time that I've been, you know, what my wife would call the lonely only, you know, right? Like college, teaching, law school, law firm, you know, you sort of just get used to being in these spaces where you're one of few, if not the only person. But in, in this space, it felt particularly egregious, right? Because we're talking about it being the civil rights movement of our time and sort of improving the condition for, for black and brown folks and one of the things I fundamentally believe is that no movement is ever successful if the people who aren't most affected are leading it. And so, you know, part of what I want to do with Camelback and the reason why I want to start is, is to say, like, there is talent that we are leaving on the sideline, that we are leaving on the margins who can bring new ideas and new energy forth to entrepreneurship and, again, particularly social entrepreneurship that can have a dramatically positive effect on the gaps and the problems that we're trying to trying to solve, whether it's high school completion or getting more women into women of color into STEM, like whatever the thing is that you care about. And so, you know, at the end of 2013, I convinced my wife to take the little bit of money we have left and start Camelback. We had a couple of folks who knew me and loved me and, you know, wrote me a small check. And so with $30,000, we started Camelback. It was out of my Brooklyn apartment. We said all entrepreneurs need the same three things to be successful, uh, coaching, connections, and capital. And that underrepresented folks probably needed that sooner or in bigger dosages for a set of uh, historical reasons I wish I could snap my fingers and change, but I cannot. And so in the pilot, we said, we barely have any money ourselves. So we're going to keep that to try to like just build the infrastructure. But I had established a set of great connections over my professional career and had learned a lot, you know, particularly at the fund for public schools where we were essentially taking funds and supporting entrepreneurs to build new new education ideas. 
So I had some some experience and just some instincts around this. And so we worked with them for for four months in the pilot. And it wasn't perfect. It was written by we. I just, I'm using it in the royal sense. It was just, <laughs> it was just me at the time. Right. And we, well, we did this pilot and, you know, we told the story of that pilot. And it took us about a year after we finished it, basically all of 2014. But at the end of the year, we raised a million dollars. And awesome. uh, that kind of got us off to the races. That's awesome. So along the way, we all stumble, right, on this journey as you shared entrepreneurship and the idea of being able to withstand failures, right? What are some of the, the challenges or failures or roadblocks that you've run into along the way? If, if there's anything yeah. that stood out to you that you'd care to share and the lessons learned from it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that Camelback was the first idea that I ever, <laughs> entrepreneurial idea I ever had, but that's not. That's the third. The first idea that I launched after I left the fund was this idea called teacher capital management. But that probably is like a whole other half hour conversation. The, the <laughs> gist of it is that I want to create a teacher talent agency. I looked and said to myself, and from a business perspective, teacher unions have a monopoly over the business of representing teachers. You know, so from a from a from a business perspective, unions collect two to three percent of a teacher's salary and in return they negotiate your contract and your working conditions. And that's sort of what an agent does. You know, the the political part comes in what what do they do with the money once it collected and like all that. And that's a whole other can of worms. But if we're just looking at the business model, and we've sort of seen in education, just like this, this sort of routing of like marketplace ideas, you know, charter schools and, you know, giving people choice and, you know, trying to unbundle curriculum so that you don't have to buy the whole textbook if really what you want is lesson one and trying to create more market choice and more market forces to improve the quality thereof. And so I thought, what would it look like? Like if, if unions actually do have monopoly over the business of representing teachers, what would it look like for there to be a, another market player where teachers like, hey, I want to go with this agent as opposed to mm. that one? As you could imagine, particularly in a place like New York City, um, we did not get very far. <laughs> you know, essentially, we would have had to decertify the 80,000 person or teacher union to be able to have even a marketplace to begin to create the space for, for the business model and the wow. business idea. And so, you know, I am not independently wealthy and could not raise, you know, money to make that happen. And so, within a year, that sort of came and went. And, you know, because I did that work, I actually ended up getting some connections and like this reputation for really understanding that teacher market. And that led me into like the second sort of business, like this consulting business I launched to kind of bridge the tide of having a family, needing to raise money, like needing to make money and, and all that. But to go back to your question around like the failure and, and the lessons learned piece, there are a lot of things that I could talk about, but I'll talk about two of them in particular. One is like just getting your idea off of paper and into the real world as fast as possible. So, you know, I could probably pull up for you, you know, like version 43 of the business plan and concept paper for, for teacher capital management. And, you know, at the end of the day, like what really matters is what happens in the real world, not how elegant it is in your mind or on paper. Right. And so, you know, that was one of the things I took with me in starting Camelback was, you know, I had the idea, you know, I played with it for three or four months. I wrote a couple little two-pagers, three-pagers during the summertime. And then I was like, hey, wifey, can I use some money to go start this thing? And like, we just got going. And so that, 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 was, that was sort of the, for the first lesson. And the second is, um, it just made me think about, and I still think about this. I don't, I don't, I'm still trying to understand exactly what, what the answer is, but have an appreciation for how important policy is mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship. You know, so I'll, I'll use a, 
non-camelback example and then jump back into one more related to education but you know you think about and i know they're sort of a little controversial these days but you think about uber right um sort of these business models that are trying to break the status quo and sort of establish ways of doing things oftentimes industries don't only have great business models they have created like a policy moat that protects that business model you know, so if you're Uber, how do you get break into certain markets? You have to go into municipalities and get city councils to vote on changing the taxi and livery ordinances and go to the airport commission so that you can figure out how you can pick up from the airport because taxi groups have sort of figured out like how to how to create a mode around their business. And so, you know, because of a lot of the entrepreneurs we work with are not just building widgets, uh, but they're trying to build businesses and organizations that are trying to make social change. Um, oftentimes, they're trying to change behavior. They're trying to upset the status quo in, in certain ways. And some of it is, yes, how good is your business model? But some of it is, how can you influence and affect policy to create the space for the business to be successful? So like for us with teacher capital management, the threshold hurdle was decertifying a union. Like That's no small thing, particularly in a, in a, in a place like New York city you know i remember when i was at the fund we had supported this idea called uh, it was at the time it was called school of one and now it's called new classrooms and i won't go into what that business is all the way but one of the things that they were trying to do was they were trying to create a new a new model for middle school classrooms um, and one of the things that they had to do was they had to go to the state and get a waiver for seat time requirements because the way school works is you need to be in the seat for a certain number of minutes every day, a certain number of days every year. And that's kind of like how you move from grade one, grade two to grade three. And so if you have an idea, if you think you can teach math or English or reading in a better way, but you need to, you need to work outside of the constraints of, you know, the seat time requirement, you know, how do you change that? You bet you might have the idea that's going to change how math is taught for a generation, but that idea is never going to see the light of day if you can't sort of wrestle with some of these policy things. And so trying to figure out as we work with entrepreneurs in Camelback, yes, there's this entrepreneurship piece, but there's also this policy piece and you know, what is our role in China? Work with those issues as well. Right. So I wanted to talk with you, you know, Camelback is developing social entrepreneurs, as you mentioned a minute ago. And you also touched on something where the things we plan, right? The things we put in a business plan and we put on paper and that are in black and white sometimes aren't the things that we really need to know or need to be able to effectively move a business forward, right? There's so many intangibles that I'm sure social entrepreneurs need and should be focusing on developing. What would you say are some of these intangibles that you've noticed social entrepreneurs needing to develop that maybe don't come naturally to most of them? You know, I would, I would say in terms of intangibles, two things. So one is just being a really good listener. I think we live in a, in a world and a time and a culture that values talking a lot. But at the end of the day, when you're building a business, you are trying to meet a customer's needs. So really trying not to get too caught up in what you think the solution is, but mm -hmm. really just trying to let your customer lead you to what the solution is by listening to them and being able to just pivot quickly to what you're hearing and, and how can you tweak and alter your, your solution. To not get, getting to get there. too tied up in your own 
idea of what the solution yeah. should be, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you gotta, I think, you know, you gotta love solving the problem more than you love your solution. Yes. You know, and if, and if you love solving the problem, then, you know, you're gonna try to listen to the, to the best of your ability, to the tea leaves, to the solution that's gonna get you to solve that problem. So you might go in thinking it's A, um, when it really might be D. And as long as you're willing to let go of A, you know, you gotta, you gotta at some point be able to solve that problem. How is Camelback, right, different than any of the other social impact fellowships that are over there? Probably the most obvious is just I think we have an explicit, unapologetic focus on black and brown entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, I know sometimes I use the word underrepresented is sort of like the clean way to kind of talk about talk about diversity but what i really mean is black and brown folks and i know that other people care about diversity and they have that built into the, their company culture but i think we're just pretty explicit and unapologetic about that and are, are looking for that talent and that's why 93 percent of our fellows these last three years have been black and brown one and then you know two is i think we have really tried to create a family-oriented culture at Camelback with this idea that the sum is greater than any of the parts. Right. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we want every one of our ventures to be successful. We realize that the percentages are not in our favor. You know, that's not really how entrepreneurship works. You know, most ventures have failed within the first five years. And so as great as we think we are, I don't think we're under any, you know, illusions that we're going to bat a thousand. But that, that being said, you know, really trying to just create the space and create a culture where, fellows really support each other where you're 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 in this experience and you're you're not doing it alone you know so we don't call them batches or anything like that because you know we don't we don't look sort of look at this as as a as a factory model we look at this as you know we're trying to help individual entrepreneurs but we're also trying to build a movement of black and brown people who are whatever they do going to support each other in a, in, a, in a bigger movement towards social justice. As you said, I, I have to think that the collect, it's, it's very important that a collective works well together. How do you decide which fellows to actually take into the program? Yeah, you know, the, the selection is probably one of the hardest things that we do every year, mm-hmm. trying to pick. I think, you know, 80% of what we look for is really around the, the, the leader and the person. You know, we have invested at such an early stage that... Uh, we're not looking at financial statements and you know things like that because really they're, so not, they're not they're, there's not existent and if right. they exist it's like you know we have one customer because you know my friend is the, is is the person who runs the place or something like that right and, and so really a lot of times we're just betting on entrepreneurs and just trying to understand do we think that they can take feedback well do we think that they have a listening orientation such that they can get their ego out of the way to get to the right solution do we think that they have identified a problem not only that they have but that is that other people have and is is, is big enough to try to be solved mm-hmm. so a lot of times we're we're sitting around trying to ask ourselves those kind of questions as we decide who who we're going to bet on so like what's maybe a question that you'd ask a prospective fellow right that you're interviewing to understand more about their mindset and the one that stands out the most, uh, you know, we've changed our questions over the last three years. Is you know, we got to practice what we preach, so we're right. always trying to tweak towards perfection. But this past year, we asked fellows to tell us or applicants to tell us about a time where they had to identify something about themselves that they wanted to change and how they did it. Hmm. Um, and so, it really has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. It's really just us trying to ascertain: like, is this person self-reflective? Is this person open and honest enough to just talk about what they're not good at? And for us to kind of understand how they process getting better. Right. 
Take me through maybe, you know, some of the processes, the practices that you use to educate and really enrich the lives of these fellows, right? You touched on, you know, some of the thought, the, the questions even coming in that weren't necessarily entrepreneurial. I'm sure that you're you're helping to groom an individual even beyond entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, our, our model is, is based around what we call the, the three C's, uh, coaching, connections, and capital, um, as, as I was saying before. And so, you know, money is like the, the most straightforward piece and the piece that everyone loves the most. Like, give me money. You know, but the the other two pieces, I think, are, are equally, um, if not more so, uh, important than the money piece. And so, you know, one of the things I realized early on for myself and, you know, I've sort of seen play out in Camelback is that, it's often having access to power and to people that can make the difference between an idea succeeding or not succeeding. And so I try to do the best that I can and, you know, do it through Camelback to take the social capital that we're building and hopefully we'll continue to build and turn around and, and leverage that and give it right back to our entrepreneurs, you know. So I've come to, you know, learn that there's this whole world of invite-only conferences and summits where a lot of decisions get made and people meet investors and deals happen and deals get made. And so there was someone who opened the door and let me into those rooms. And so I feel like it's an obligation for me to turn around and do the same because it, it's just going to give give our entrepreneurs more of an opportunity to bring it to fruition the thing that, they, that they're trying to, to, to make happen. And then the other pieces, you know, it's sort of cliche, but people say that uh, entrepreneurship is lonely, being at the top is lonely. And that's not like wholly true, but there there are definitely some some aspects to that that are that are true. And so, you know, we give our entrepreneurs a coach get to meet with. They get two coaches actually. One coach they meet with every week, and the other they meet with every two weeks. And actually, it's it's in a small group setting, so with their other with their other fellows. And part of it is just realizing, you know, particularly in, in the group leadership things that we do, is that we actually have the knowledge and the power and the wisdom within us, um, either individually or within this group of of black and brown entrepreneurs that we bring together uh, so that they leave not necessarily feeling like, hey, all the answers are out there, right? That the, A lot of the answers and knowledge are actually within us and within this group right here and having them understand the, the power in that. You know, as you're talking, I wanted to, I'm, I'm assuming, how is Camelback Ventures being funded? Are you receiving funding from like foundations yeah. and philanthropists and how are you receiving monies? So we are, we're a nonprofit, so we go out and fundraise as well, mainly from large foundations. So the Walton Family Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, among others, have, have, have supported our work so far. In these foundations, do you see opportunity arising within the Black community as far as philanthropy goes? Like, Are there Black philanthropists out there that are, are beginning to seed some of these programs, like yours? Two things I've noticed. One is, by and large, um, not not 100%, but by and large, every program officer at any of the foundations that have supported us over the last three years uh, has been a person of color. So I, I do think that there are a lot of people of color who are at these institutions who understand why our work is important, understand why supporting uh, entrepreneurs of color are important, are trying to shepherd those issues through their through their foundations so that has been really positive you know development and you know i, I thank them every day um, the other observation though is that at least when it comes to principles you know like whose money it actually is not necessarily who's working there there's a gap there you know and some of it is is right around generational issues of, of wealth creation and so i you know i definitely recognize you know recognize that, that there are just more 
white billionaires and millionaires than there are black and brown. So, I mean, from a, from a number standpoint, that's true. But also just trying to figure out how do we, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night is how to figure out how do, how can we get more black and brown philanthropists and impact investors to invest in Camelback or invest in other, you know, similarly situated, you know, organizations that are trying right. to support, support those folks. And, you know, I, I, I wrestle with it because I know that, you know, factually, for instance, let's just take African Americans. You know, we are the most philanthropic racial group of any other in the U.S. on a percentage of discretionary income. And I'm sure that there's a portion of that that's due to, you know, just tithing to the church. You know, but there's, there's this whole other world of strategic philanthropy and the kind of philanthropy that foundations are engaged in. Um, where, we're, where we're largely absent, either working there, you know, there's, there's usually a small handful, if any, but then also as principals, you know, people starting starting large foundations that are, you know, not just funding programs, but moving policy. So, you know, that, that's sort of my big dream is how, how do we get any of the, the folks of color, whether they are entertainers or athletes that we sort of all know of or people who are more underground but who have a boatload of money to sort of, sort of engage, I think it would actually change the conversation on a lot of issues. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we're getting set to wrap up here, but I have a couple more questions for you. I'd love to understand kind of like where you're going from here, like what's happening in 2017, right? In terms of your plans and your vision for the remainder of the year, what's happening for Camelback um, going forward? You know, we're, we're about to wrap up our, our third year. And so as I think about Camelback in three-year chunks, thinking, okay, you know, we, I think we've proven that we can exist and develop really strong entrepreneurs of color. And so... For the next three years, it's how do we do more of that? Mm-hmm. You know, we've done between 10 and 12 entrepreneurs the last three years, but uh, we want to double that come 2018. How do we go to 20? How do we go from investing $40,000 to investing 80000 or 120000 Because we realize that 40 is good, but it doesn't get people nearly where they need to go. And so that is sort of the direction that we're trying to head in because we realize a, there are people who uh, deserve to be supported that we just haven't been able to because we haven't had the capacity. One, and then when we do support people, we're just realizing that we've done a good job, but we can do more and do better with more resources. And so we're trying to make that happen. Right. Is a limitation for you, you know, having the right team in place? Is it having the right capital partners in place? Like what's, what's the, the bigger challenge keeping you up at night looking at that goal? You know, we raised $4 million to support our work over the first three years. Our goal is to raise $20 million to support our work over the next three years. So, you know, that that's a five-fold increase. You know, so to do that, we're going to have to, you know, we've got a great team. We're going to need to add to that. So probably go from five people to 10 in the next, you know, 18 months. So trying to, you know, always on the lookout for talent. I mean, you know, one of the things I've learned for my wife is that you know you got to build your bench before you need it so you know so we're, we're always we're always looking for talent one but two it, it's just been interesting like I, you know I, I sit on this advisory board for this other fund and oh, that will remain nameless but you know a lot of entrepreneurs come through this fund and most of them are white and male and we're like looking at the money that they've raised and you know they raise a million dollars in friends and family six hundred fifty thousand dollars and so you just sort of look to yourself and you say 
you know, how do black and brown entrepreneurs compete at the same level when they start building businesses from the very beginning that are undercapitalized? And so we got, we got to change that dynamic. Like everyone doesn't get a trophy and I get that. So this is not about saying every black and brown person needs to succeed, but we're definitely leaving value on the table. I hear that, man. Listen, what kind of books are you reading, you know, right now that are inspiring or <laughs> guiding you or and helping you to grow in, in all of this? You know, with the young kids these days, I'm reading, I'm watching a lot of Disney movies. Uh, <laughs> but Pe- I, Peppa Pig teaching you a thing or two. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Moana. That's uh, <laughs> one in the day. But, you know, when I do have a chance to read a couple books that have, you know, really stuck with me those, the last, you know, six months. You know, one of them is When Breath Becomes Air, which I know has been on the New York Times bestseller list for a while. But I don't know. I just find that book inspiring. It just kind of reminds you to live every day. You don't know what's going to happen next. You know, there's this part where the doctor is, is sort of talking about why it's so important to be technically excellent at what you do. And, you know, he even says that technical excellence is a moral requirement, you know, that because it's a difference between tragedy and triumph uh, can be a millimeter or two when you're talking about being a surgeon. You know, you're a millimeter off and you're in someone's body like that. That could you know, that could change things. And so, um, and he sees that as a moral requirement. Um, and so I just sort of really find that inspiring to myself and try to try to talk about it with our team some is that, you know, being technically good is not just like, it, like it's a moral requirement. Like if we're off just by a little bit with our fellows or with our work or with our partners, that could be the difference between tragedy and triumph. And so we, we got to do the best that we can to get it right. Aaron, we're at the end of this episode, but before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one last question and more so to allow you to, to inspire or trailblazers coming off this call. So I'd love for you to share one action that our aspiring trailblazers should take this week to help them blaze their trail. It probably just sounds simple, but just get started. Sometimes the, the, the hardest step is the first one. But, but just get started. I think we always, I'm not ready. I need this. I need that. And all those things might make it better. I'm not saying those things wouldn't make it better or make it easier. But sometimes just, just, just getting started. And the other thing is just tell people about your dream and tell people about what your vision is. I think a lot of times, and we want to hold it tight and we want to hold it close. We don't want other people to know maybe because we haven't worked it all the way out in our minds or because we're afraid someone's going to take our idea or something that but what i've often found is that when you tell people what your vision is you tell the people what your dream is people want to help they help in big and small ways and so you know get started and tell people about what you're trying to do aaron walker thank you so much for being our guest brother good conversation i appreciate it and next time i'll call you we can talk about disney movie (laughs) well that's it for today thanks again for listening to this episode of the trailblazers podcast I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, or colleagues to listen to an episode that you think 
might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers.